You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So prayed Christ to his Father on the night he was betrayed. Yet Christians seem far from unified, divided as we are by institutions, confessions, ethical stances, even race and economics. This often gets blamed on the Protestant Reformation, when men like Martin Luther made standing alone with nothing but scripture and their conscience look so cool. Yet that understanding of Protestantism, says Kevin Van Hooser, misunderstands the Reformers' most fundamental principles. The essence of Protestantism, mere Protestantism, isn't to sing solo, but sola, united by our confession of grace, faith, scripture, Christ, and God's glory alone. Far from splitting us apart, Van Hooser says the solas can bind us together, perhaps not in unison, but in beautiful harmony. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and author of Biblical Authority After Babel, Retrieving the Solas in the Spirit of Mere Protestant Christianity. Good afternoon, Dr. Van Hooser. Hello again. It's good to be here. Well, I appreciate you coming back for uh, third time's the charm, I believe. Excellent. Well, your book uh, you have it in the you have it in the title um, that you're you're dealing with the the famous solas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which leads everyone, I think, to remember the most infamous or perhaps the most controversial sola, um, Scripture only. Now, there's a story about Protestantism that your book, I think, aims to contradict. So. What is that story, and how does that story end up being turned into a critique against that most controversial sola, scripture only? I think there is a story that's being told. Pretty, It's a popular story. It has more than one teller telling it. And I was moved to try to respond to that story, in part because it's the almost the anniversary of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And I've been hearing as many Protestants say that they're going to lament the Reformation rather than celebrate it. I I found that disturbing. But I think that's because of the power of this story that's going round, that Protestantism is the parent of a lot of things that we don't like in modern society. That, for example... um, Brad Gregory has argued that an unintended consequence of, of the Reformation is, is modern secularism and individualism. Hmm. But the main story that I'm concerned to address and hopefully challenge is the idea that um, the Reformers' emphasis on Scripture alone, uh, particularly combined with the idea that every believer is his or her own interpreter, that those two things together represent what Alistair McGrath has called Christianity's dangerous idea. And the, the reason it's dangerous is that he believes and others believe 
that it's a recipe for chaos rather than consensus. And in particular, the chaos I have in mind is interpretive chaos. That's the babble of the title, hmm. uh, babble not of tongues, but of interpretations. And the basic idea is that when the reformers rejected the, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, the, the head of the, uh, of the church, who alone can arbitrate the conflict of interpretations, the idea is, having rejected that head, Protestantism is without a head. Uh, the Greek for that would be anarchos, hmm. and we get our term anarchy from that. So the idea is that without an interpretive or authoritative head, to arbitrate the conflict of interpretations, Protestantism inadvertently bequeathed interpretive anarchy on the world. Hmm. And again, there are other sub stories that go with it, the most common one being that Luther loosed modern individualism on the world, the idea that if everyone can read the Bible for him or herself, isn't that a kind of individualism? And doesn't that individualism actually beget sectarianism? Hmm. So there's a lot of things that people want to lay at the reformers' doorstep and then blame them for, but among them uh, is interpretive anarchy, individualism, and what gets lost according to that way of telling the story, what, what the reformers lost, they say, is tradition and mm. the church itself. Mm. So that, that's all those things uh, are what I was concerned to address, because it's those things, I think, that are leading some people uh, to lament rather than celebrate the achievement of the reformers. Okay. Just just to be clear. Now, are you arguing that sola scriptura didn't cause the crisis, the interpretive anarchy that you're describing, but that something else did? Or that sola scriptura needn't have caused that crisis if it had been understood as the reformers developed the idea? Uh, thanks. That's, that's an important distinction. I, I say in the book that I'm not in the first instance, uh, doing church history. That's because I'm not a historian. I don't think I've discovered any new facts. I haven't, you know, I, I, I'm not challenging what happened. I am challenging how we should interpret what happened. And I think the way you put it is very helpful. Uh, it may be that the Reformation was a factor in leading to some of these developments, but I do want to say that, that it needn't have gone in that direction. And in fact, I, I also want to argue that it's actually a fallacy to argue that the vociferousness, that's that term that has to do with this, you know, a kind of uh, dispersion movement uh, uh, where things break apart, that, that vociferousness that followed the Reformation, it followed it, yes, but that doesn't mean that the Reformation caused it. If you think that what follows from something is also the cause of it, that's the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I put it in the book is this. I, I say the accidental truths of European history should never be used to be the proof of the necessary truths of Protestant theology. Hmm. So, yeah, some things happened in the wake of the Reformation. Did it necessarily have to happen that way? I don't think so. And 
I guess the historical evidence I would give for that is that there was a a movement, there was an attempt on the part of the reformers to work for for unity. Um, In fact, they they met together, these differing factions, you know, when they were disagreeing about the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. They met together more than once to try to iron out their differences because they cared. And also, Luther in particular knew that um, his idea could become a Pandora's box because he saw it happened. Uh, He had to confront the so-called enthusiasts, and he had to sort of curtail and rein in the diversity of opinion that some took necessarily followed from his ideas. I don't think he thought they necessarily followed, nor did the other reformers. Well, Protestantism often gets described with our words, like radical and revolution, and that plays into that that story about Protestantism that you're wanting to push back on. Um, so instead you use a different word, uh, retrieval. Now, in theological circles, what is retrieval, or the French R word, ressourcement? Is that... I think that's right. Good pronunciation. Okay, all right. Um, I always feel unsettled whenever I approach French. Um, so what were the retri- what were the reformers retrieving, and what are you attempting to retrieve, I guess, from them? Yeah, so the key term, as you've rightly reminded us, is retrieving. And the way I'm using it, it doesn't simply mean replicating or repeating Uh, We can't do that because the context has changed. So I'm not suggesting Mm -hmm. we say exactly what the Reformers did in our context. Uh, It's rather, by retrieval, I mean we look back in order to move forward. Um, There's both fidelity to the past and yet a bit of creativity in the present when one retrieves something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm taking the term ressourcement from actually Roman Catholics. Uh, Vatican II was in large part a retrieval of the Church Fathers. That was mm-hmm. a very important development of Roman Catholicism. It got them past the logjam of certain forms of Thomism to go back to the Church Fathers themselves. And so I'm, I'm being a little coy here by using that term because... Retrieval is often associated with with Vatican II. I, what am I, a Protestant, doing using? <laughs> and what I'm trying to do is I, I want to say, retrieval is the way to do theology. We we do need to look back in order to move forward. But I want to look back in particular to the reformers, and I do so in part because the reformers themselves looked back to the broader Catholic tradition. It was very important for Luther and Augustinian and for Calvin to be in line and to be guided by uh, the, the, the grand tradition. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I speak of retrieval, then, I don't mean that I'm simply wanting to repeat what the Reformers said, but I do want to recover what they were able to see and deploy that in fresh ways for our problems today. It's, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive because, as we said earlier, many people think the problem is sola scriptura. I'm actually saying, well, 
That may be a problem taken by itself, but the solution is to reclaim sola scriptura along with the other solas. So that's what I mean to look back to the solas in order to move forward in this context where there's interpretive anarchy. Right. Now, when you talk about retrieving the solas, uh, you make a big point um, or early on, I think it's the beginning of the chapter with grace alone, uh, you note that there's no authoritative sequence given to the solas by the reformers. So as you're retrieving them, you're also putting them into uh, a kind of an arrangement. Um, so what is the logic in the sequence that you choose as you kind of build from grace alone to the glory of God alone? Is there, is there an inherent logic that you see them kind of working together to build to, into something? Uh, that's a great question, and I thought about this a lot for a couple of reasons. Um, first, in my research, I discovered that it's a little bit anachronistic to talk about the five solas of the Reformation because the Reformers themselves mentioned only three right. together explicitly. <laughs> yeah, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. Right. And then I began doing a little more digging and realized that it wasn't until the 19th century and finally early 20th century that the five consolidated, you know, and were began to be mentioned by other people as a set of five. Mm -hmm. So I, at first I wanted to just um, mention that. Uh, secondly, I do also want to say that they you could put it together differently. I, I could probably do it myself to start with a different solo and then show how they lead to others. I do have a logic, um, everything, and I, I'm happy to talk about that, but I do think there is a logic. I certainly was following a plan, and I was, um, I guess, encouraged to think in the way I did by uh, Herman Bovink's reference. So he was thinking about the 400th anniversary of the Reformation. So in 1917, hmm. he, he talked about the three solas, uh, solo uh, gratia, fide, and scriptura, he talked about those three solos as expressing the essence of the Reformation insight into the nature of the gospel. So I began thinking about, okay, these solas are all having something to do with the gospel. And then I came across uh, an Australian biblical theologian, Graham Goldsworthy, who talked about the five solas together as representing a kind of hermeneutics for reading scripture. And uh, he said that the five alones actually should work together uh, to express the one essential truth of the gospel. Hmm. So the, the idea that I had is that the five solas could be what I call the first theology of mere Protestant Christianity, hmm. that they're not just isolated doctrines, but they're actually integrated. They're all ways of thinking about the gospel. And there, and I would argue that um, sola gratia, grace alone, gives rise to what I call an insight into the ontology of the gospel. Faith has to do with epistemology, um, so does scripture. And then Christ has to do with the teleology of the gospel and in, in ways that we can talk about. But that was sort of the the logic behind my setting out the order is that each of them, each of the solas, give us an insight into some important aspect of the gospel. And it seemed right to me 
uh, to begin with Sola Grazia, and I, I can explain why if you want. Sure. Well, we're going to turn to focusing specifically on your discussion of, of grace alone, and uh, we can, I, I guess we can begin there, because as a child, this is, this is where uh, teaching about the gospel, gospel began for me. Um, I was taught, you know, like text from Ephesians 2, um, you're saved by grace, you know. Yes. Uh, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a gospel fundamental for me, right? Right. But you treat grace alone as a foundation not only for an evangelistic message, which is the way it was introduced to me, but also the divine economy of how God works in the world, and even even the very being of God um, within the within the Trinity. Um, just how much can Sola Grazia give us? <laughs> That's a fair question. Uh, you know, I, I, as I say, I am retrieving, which means going back in order to look forward. And I think there is a very important insight we get from the Reformation, but I am expanding on it. So we go back, yes, grace alone to me is not simply about soteriology. It is about theology proper. That is the nature of God. And I'm thinking about the way God reveals himself, for example, in the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. There's a famous uh, episode in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Moses has just asked God to show him his glory. And the glory of the Lord comes down and then names itself. And what we have is an expression of God's fundamental nature, um, the fact that he is abounding in steadfast love and merciful. And hmm. that that's a programmatic statement. It's, it's his name, yes, but it's also a programmatic statement for everything else that happens in Scripture because that steadfast love and mercy and abiding faithfulness comes to a climax in the event of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So in the book, Sola Grazia, indicates not only that we're saved by grace rather than works, but that from first to end, there's a priority of God's presence and of God's activity, which starts in creation and redemption, and, I argue, also is the framework for biblical interpretation. Hmm. So that's significant, because I, I want this book is about how we get beyond our interpretive disagreement I think one of the ways we get beyond that is by realizing that all of our interpretation, insofar as it's true and authoritative, is itself a result of the grace of God. Hmm. So um, grace in my book is a kind of shorthand term for God in communicative action, God communicating himself to human beings, God giving himself uh, to human beings in the words of Scripture and in the living word, Jesus Christ. And the reason that it matters to my book, as I have hinted, is that Sola Grazia reminds biblical interpreters that we're part of something bigger. We're, we're part of what I would call an economy of mm. God's communicative action. And we're, we're, what we do is a response to what God has done and this economy of God communicating himself, this economy of God sharing his own life, 
it's structured in the Bible by a series of divine covenantal initiatives. Mm-hmm. And each of those covenants is a result of God's grace. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, an initiative of God that he didn't have to make, but he did. So this, to me, is the widest possible context for thinking about biblical interpretation. It's a result of a gracious initiative on God's part. And I think we best understand Scripture only when we see that the Bible itself is an ingredient in this broader economy of of, uh, God's communication, which is a gracious economy. And so I'm saying both the Bible itself and biblical interpretation are not independent human works. That's the connection to what the Reformers meant by grace alone. It's not our works that save us. It's not even our interpretive works that save us. Rather, uh, Scripture and interpretation itself are ingredients in this broader economy or broader work of God's self-communication. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm saying then that sola gratia reminds us as readers of Scripture that we're not autonomous agents. <laughs> that it's, not, it's not interpretation by works alone, lest mm-hmm. we should boast. <laughs> Rather, we're communicants, and we are communicants only because God has taken the communicative initiative, but he's allowed us to participate in his communicative activity via interpretation. Every night when we put our children uh, to bed, we we sing them the uh, the old one hundredth. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yes. So the 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 gratia you're uh, I'm I'm going to try to re-say back at you. Um, you're 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 using sola gratia to attune us to the to the givenness of everything, and that givenness works all the way back into the self-giving of God back in back in divine ontology. That's right. It, it's, uh, I, did you say givenness? There's a way of talking about givenness, which, <laughs> uh, which suggests nature instead of grace. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, the given. I think I would say the giftingness of things. That oh, is, that's nicer, yeah. Yeah, we have, to, we have to remember that grace is an initiative of God's freedom, so we shouldn't take it for granted. And in that respect, it's not like nature, you know, the inert given. It's the it's what has been gifted to us. Mm. Nice. So let's move to faith alone. Okay. Um, so again, faith not works uh, is the ground of our right standing with God. That's a gospel axiom. Yes. Um. And how this leads to my personal salvation, again, clear to me. But you ground an epistemology on that, which then undergirds the way uh, you under, uh, undergirds a doctrine of receiving Scripture and of reading and interpreting Scripture. Um, bridge that gap for us. Right. So um, you're right that when the reformers say faith alone, they their contrast term is works, right? Works mm-hmm. of human righteousness that would make us acceptable to God. Interestingly, there have been people, uh, I'm thinking especially of Gerhard Ebeling and Rudolf Bultmann, who have used that faith-works contrast in relation to biblical interpretation and epistemology. Huh. So they were sort of in the back of my mind, and the idea is, 
Bultmann was saying that there's a kind of epistemological equivalent of salvation by works. And the idea is that um, if we think of ourselves as autonomous knowers, then our knowing activity is a little bit like a work, which instead of makes us, instead of making us righteous, it makes us knowledgeable. Hmm. Uh, but, and I think for me, that was in the back of my mind, but in the forefront of my mind was the fact that uh, the Reformation is accused of bequeathing uh, a kind of modern individualism, a kind of autonomous rationality, because hmm. Luther, in suggesting that everyone can read the Bible for him or herself, seems to suggest we don't need tradition, right? Just the individual, the individual's reason, and we read Scripture, and that's it. And, and his view of Scripture's clarity might even seem to support that idea. But that does give rise to uh, the idea of autonomous reason, right? Each individual is an interpretive law to him mm -hmm. or herself. So that was really the contrast I wanted to make, this idea that interpreters are autonomous rational agents, which some think the Reformation has encouraged. I want to go back to the Reformation and say, in fact, the emphasis on faith puts the accent somewhere else not on us as autonomous knowers, but rather on humans as dependent listeners. We need a word in order to know things, right? Faith comes by the hearing of a word that is not our own. Hmm. So the other thing that faith suggests is that knowing is a matter not of modern suspicion, which is how reason has gone in modernity, the critical move, right, where we're suspicious of appearances. Mm -hmm. that's, that's modern rationality, Descartes and all that. But uh, rather, the Reformers emphasize faith as trust. And so what I talk about in this chapter on sola fide is um, the principle of authority being the Word of God that solicits faith. That, that faith is a response to a word that precedes it and calls us to trust it. And then I link it to Alvin Plantinga, who I rather cheekily suggest might be the philosopher of mere Protestant Christianity, <laughs> because, because Plantinga has given us an account of knowledge where he speaks about how the mind has been designed to trust what it has been told. Hmm. And... That, that, and that we're within our epistemic rights to trust others. And so this is what I've played on. Not only are, is faith the response uh, of hearing God's word, and only if God speaks can we know him, so we have to receive his word, but I've actually gone further and suggested that if we understand faith and the importance of trust, we'll see the importance of what another author has called epistemic conscientiousness. That means that if we see that other people are also trying to listen to God's Word, then we'll see that it might be tr right to trust others, at least initially, and to listen to what they say they've heard in Scripture, and not to rely simply upon ourselves. Hmm. So my, I make a case that, that mere Protestant biblical interpreters think that, or should think, 
that they'll have a better understanding of what God is saying to them in Scripture if they listen to the work of other interpreters, and that includes other interpretive communities. Hmm. In other words, just to boil this all down, far from uh, ascribing to a kind of autonomous rationality, the Reformers are, are, are not at all epistemic individualists. Um, they actually have reason to trust the Word of God and the way that Word has been interpreted by other Christians, at least initially. I'm not saying they have to be gullible and swallow everything, but the thrust of the Reformation and its emphasis on faith is trusting the words of others, and that includes the interpretation, the biblical interpretation of other interpreters. That's the idea, at least. Hmm. It, your discussion of that made me think of um, Edwards' Divine and Supernatural Light. Yes. And uh, I'd, I'd never really thought about it from that kind of angle, but... Uh, uh, the the idea that if if a divine and supernatural light working working with the word through faith in me yes. uh, is leading me to trust then i'm in no position to think that god working through faith is not working that way in other readers and hearers of the word exactly and uh, if i could just add here because i think that's the right track um i view tradition as sort of the sum total of what many people have heard over the centuries. Mm -hmm. And um, in that respect, I've compared tradition to the light of the moon. Um, here's the analogy. Just as you can walk at night by the light of the moon, so that the moon really does give off light, and so it's helpful, very mm -hmm. helpful if you're lost in, in the outback. Uh, so, the, as we know, the light that the moon gives off is but a reflection of the sun. And so I think that Scripture is like the sun. It is the source of the light. But tradition, this trustful listening of the Word to the Word by Christians down through the centuries, tradition is like the moon. It, it really gives off light, but the light it gives ultimately comes from Scripture. Well, that's leading us up to uh, up to the sola uh, scripture alone, which I want to treat with uh, alongside of uh, what you do within Christ alone. Um, for this okay. reason, because in these two chapters, um, you're sort of doing and <laughs> you're taking a page from Odysseus here and uh. charting a course between the hermeneutical anarchy of of a kind of a naked biblicism. And then the hermeneutical tyranny of an infallible magisterium, right? Yes. So, in what ways are the word of God and the people of God, in their in their own ways, rightfully authoritative? Good. This is uh, getting at the heart of the book's argument, really. Yeah. And uh, so, I think your the contrast you give is right. The I think you said the hermeneutical anarchy of naked biblicism. That is, there is a way of thinking about Scripture alone that does generate hermeneutical anarchy. That is, if the phrase sola scriptura is isolated from the other solas, mm -hmm. then we do have that danger, uh, I think, of hermeneutical anarchy. Um, and 
I don't think sola scriptura is the is the reason for this. I don't think it's the fault of sola scriptura. I think it's the fault of those who have distorted sola scriptura into what I call solo scriptura. Mm-hmm. I don't think the reformers ever meant the Bible to be the only source of theology. I don't think they ever meant that. In fact, there's lots of evidence they did not mean that, not least that they themselves had frequent recourse to tradition. Mm -hmm. So clearly, if they had meant that, they would have been performing contradictions left and right. So the more charitable reading would be to say, that's not what they meant. But I think some have misinterpreted the reformers or just taken that formula out of context and turned it into solo scriptura, as if the Bible alone could be the only source of theology. Mm. So uh, you're right, and that's one of the main reasons I think it is important to link it to in Christ alone. And I need to say here, though, that in Christ alone, I, I am retrieving this notion, so I'm doing something a little different with the solus Christus notion, uh, I'm, I'm really focusing on Christ alone as the place where the church is gathered. Hmm. That's, uh, it's a little bit of a creative move. Uh, I think I can justify it, but, but that's, the, that's the conceptual move I'm making. Um, in Christ alone pertains to the, the, the church because it's in Christ alone where the church is gathered. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and this means that ecclesiology is a very big part of my argument. So I think your question had to do with how do I, how do I somehow locate authority between, on the one hand, Scripture alone, that is, solo Scriptura, and then the Church alone as a kind of, um, well, you called it an infallible magisterium. So the short answer is this. With the Reformers, I want to say that the Bible alone has magisterial authority. It's not that it is alone, it isn't that there are other sources of authority, but the Scripture alone has magisterial authority, but that opens up the door for various kinds of ministerial authority, second-order authorities. And this shouldn't surprise us, because we know from the Bible that, well, Jesus says, all authority is given to him alone. So all authority is his, all authority on heaven and on earth, case closed. But Christ sees fit to delegate his authority. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we have to speak not only of a principle of authority, but of a pattern of authority. And so in the book, really um, much depends on getting this pattern right. In fact, I think everything depends on getting this pattern of authority right. Christ alone rules his father's house. He is Lord of the manor. (laughs) But he assigns housekeeping tasks Mm -hmm. to others. And he gives others the keys to the house, the keys to the kingdom. So what we have here, I think, and what what I want to recover, and this is one of the main things I want to retrieve in the book, it's not simply the idea of the priesthood of every isolated believer. That's never what the Reformers meant. Rather, I want to recover the authority of the priesthood of all believers, that is, of a, as a collective notion. Mm. Yeah, and um, it's a, it's, in fact, it's a royal 
priesthood, right? That's what First Peter refers to, a royal priesthood. And I think the royal underlines the fact that, that authority is in view here. If, if we didn't have the word royal, it might be harder to establish authority. But, but royal suggests majesty, magisterium, you see? So I think royal suggests authority, priesthood suggests the, the gathering of the church, and Christ alone has authority but has given authority, delegated authority, a ministerial authority to this royal priesthood. I think the way to to think about it would be to think of Christ authorizing interpreters. That is, mm. he sends out his disciples in his name. He gives them the royal power to cast out demons and so on. Similarly, the risen Christ, so we're told in Ephesians 4, authorizes pastors and teachers. That is, he's, he's, he's um, delegating to certain people, the task of ministering and administering his word. Now, I do think that all Christians have the privilege and responsibility of ministering Christ's word, but pastors and teachers, elders, uh, ordained uh, churchmen, have the special uh, privilege and responsibility of teaching with authority. And again, it's an authority under Christ. But the church isn't just a isn't just a um, disorganized group of people. There is a certain order to the church, and in the book I, I suggest that every local church is in fact a local embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And this is this is amazing. I mean, Christ, the risen Christ, authorizes the church to be His local embassy. You know, the kingdom is heavenly, the kingdom is one, but churches are local embassies of the kingdom. So when the church gets it right, it's a parable of the kingdom. Hmm. And the other thing to say about this embassy is that there are, well, there is an order to it. Not just anybody can get in and do anything and represent Jesus. That's a pretty important thing, right, to represent Jesus. Hmm. So I think um, Jesus talks about this when he tells his disciples that he's given them the keys of the kingdom, and that means they have the right to bind and loose, to forgive and not to forgive, to communicate and share communion, and to excommunicate people who don't belong in the body of Christ. And that is an authoritative role. Uh, it, again, it's delegated, but I believe that every local church has the responsibility of ensuring that the gospel will be preserved. Hmm. And sadly, sadly, that means that sometimes errant interpreters, people who get it badly wrong, have to be disciplined in the, in the positive sense of corrected, right? And if they don't accept correction, then maybe they have to be disciplined in the negative sense of being, of being asked to leave. Hmm. But uh, the, if, if every local church is an embassy, a representation on earth of the kingdom of God as it is in heaven, then I think it's important that someone hold the keys to this kingdom because it simply means somebody has to be authorized to make the judgments about what is or is not fitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. This particular section was... Uh 
was especially, I thought, helpful for me um, to to not only anchor this position of a, of a, of a real authorized ministerial authority in the church, but also to not also that you're not only drawing it from the pastoral epistles, right? Yes. Or or some other you know kind of textual backwater. <laughs> but uh, but that it's but that it's actually playing out from the these these central fundamental um ground level principles that uh I think most evangelicals got um essentially as the gospel. Um Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Sure, sure. You know, and I I, I borrow this analogy from uh from Fred Sanders in his book, The Deep Things of God. Uh, he, he talks about the gospel message as being kind of the cutting edge of theological realities and principles that go all the way back up into the Trinity itself. Yes. Right. So that the, so that all of this Trinitarian theology is the heft of the blade behind the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like you're doing something like that here, that these gospel principles and the solas, um, you're 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 following that that trajectory into into an ecclesiology, into a hermeneutics, into an epistemology, um, into the heft of the blade, as it were. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Thank you. That's very helpful. I, what I discovered was that ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, isn't just for the convenience of church order or because we have to somehow organize ourselves because we are humans on earth. Mm-hmm. No, the church order is, is as you're suggesting, part and parcel of the gospel witness. Mm. And the church itself is very much a part of the gospel because the church is this reconciled community, this new humanity that has done away with kinds of oppositions that continue to divide people in our world. Uh, different ethnicities, different classes, and so on. So the church is very much part of the gospel proclamation. It not only does the proclamation, but it is itself a kind of gospel proclamation. And that was one other thing I wanted to recover in this book, the the idea of the priesthood of all believers, which is to say the the church as very much a concern of the reformers. The church is a creature of the word, it's a citizenship of the gospel. It's an embassy of the kingdom. It's far from being an afterthought to biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the consummation, uh, Christ will present to himself this glorious church that, that you're talking about. And our Lord is a monogamist. <laughs> uh, so. Yes. You see in the gospel retrieval of the reformers a more a more complicated vision of this unity of the bride than all Christians located in the same visible institution. So, kind of bridge, as we're kind of moving from the role of the church in relationship to the authority of Scripture, when you look at Protestantism, it seems like, well, okay, which of these churches are you talking about? or all yes. of them, or what. Yes. Um, how is this unity and diversity, you argue, I think, more f- 
for the glory of God alone mm-hmm. than, a, than a uniformity. Right. Yeah, uh, great question. There are some counterintuitive suggestions in my book, and, and this may be one of them, that that somehow the very plurality of churches could somehow rebound to the glory of God, whereas most people think that the the divided church is, you know, one of the most potent arguments against the truth of Christianity, and in a sense, a a practical denial of the gospel. Hmm. So we have to tread very carefully here in thinking about kinds of unity and kinds of diversity. Uh, In the book, I argue that, you know, it's so important to be careful here when we talk about unity, because there is a kind of gospel-sanctioned unity, but there's also another kind of unity that isn't the type we should we should be going for. I think, to go back to my title, uh, the Tower of Babel, you know, was trying to go for a certain kind of unity, mm-hmm. uh, and people can be united against God. So uni- unity in itself is not necessarily virtuous. But you mentioned um, that I was retrieving a complicated vision of unity. I think I'd prefer the word complex rather than complicated. Okay. Complex only because it's made up of different parts. Ah. Um, so, for example, think of the witness of the New Testament to Jesus. I'm not sure that I would say that because we have four Gospels, we have a complicated witness. I would say it's a complex witness, right? We have four voices, four portraits of Jesus rather than one, and... No one voice or gospel, I think, contains everything we want to say. Uh, Wouldn't you agree that, in a sense, it's only because we have four gospels that we see a greater fullness of Jesus' glory than if we would only have had one? Mm -hmm. That's, That's my analogy, and I'm wondering if the diversity of churches isn't a little bit or couldn't be seen as a little bit like the diversity of the Gospels. There is one Gospel, but we have four written Gospels. There is one Church, but we have many local instantiations. I'm also thinking of uh, Andrew Walls, a missiologist, who has convinced me that when the Gospel gets translated into another culture, or when we try to contextualize Christianity into another culture, we learn something uh, mm-hmm. in that very process of translation, or we could say interpretation. We learn something more about our faith, about Jesus. And he says, when the gospel is contextualized into another culture, it's as if Jesus himself grows bigger. But um, of course, what's growing bigger is not Jesus himself, but our understanding of him, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how I see the plurality of churches that. Because we have so many interpretations, and they're not always in conflict, but because we have so many different interpretations, we may well come to a fuller grasp of who Jesus is, rather than if we only had one denomination's view of Jesus. Mm. And, and part of what I have in mind here, and this was, again, one of the major motives for the book, uh, it's, what, it's Christian Smith's argument in his book, The Bible Made Impossible, that sola scriptura, a theory of biblical authority, he says that it gives rise to what he calls pervasive interpretive pluralism. 
Hmm. And it's clear from the book that this is a bad thing. <laughs> Pervasive interpretive pluralism means people can never get together and agree on anything when it comes to the Bible's view, whether it's on dieting or baptism or God, there is pervasive interpretive pluralism, and the theory of biblical authority, sola scriptura, doesn't solve that those conflicting voices. That's the problem I'm trying to address. I don't think having many churches necessarily leads to the problem Christian Smith addresses or points out, because the many Protestant churches agree on the fundamentals of the gospel. Hmm. So there is, there is a unitive thrust in the Reformation. There's an agreement on fundamental doctrines, orthodoxy, and yet there is diversity on non-essentials. And so in contrast to Smith's pervasive interpretive pluralism, I try to argue in this book for what I call a unitive interpretive plurality, and building on uh, Andrew Walls, I suggest that the Church, as this series of holy nations, are, are bringing to, or will bring at the consummation, to the table, the, to the table of the Lamb, to the supper of the Lamb, they'll bring the riches that they've been able to produce, and those riches include uh, a host of interpretations of Scripture that that are they don't contradict on the essentials, but the very diversity on non-essentials is a testimony to the richness of the gospel. That, that's the thrust of what I'm trying to do here, hmm. and I think that's all to the glory of God. It's not a strict uniformity. You know, we're, we don't all have to be one kind of Protestant. I think if we were mere Protestant Christianity would be the lesser for it. Hmm. So I've joked to students that even if I had a button that I could push and eliminate a whole denomination, <laughs> imagine that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? <laughs> Someone could have a button that could eliminate a denomination. I wouldn't press the button. Even if I, I, I don't belong to these denominations, but I wouldn't press the button because I believe that as a uh, a contextualized, localized interpretation of the gospel, each denominational church, which always has a historical origin, and, you know, and, and they're sensitized to certain things because of their origin, every one of those churches has something to contribute to the church Catholic. Hmm. So the, the church as a whole would be poorer if any one of the parts were missing. Hmm. So you don't see this this kind of unit this unity and diversity um as a kind of i i i don't know as a kind of hegelian synthesis where we just kind of talk to each other more and more and more until we're all saying the same thing no no it's not it's not that i think to be honest i see a ecumen ecumenism might be more heading in that direction mm -hmm. I, i'm not in fate well let me put it this way mere protestant christianity is not the same as lowest common denominator Christianity. Okay. <laughs> and I think that's what you'd get at the end of a Hegelian dialectic, mm -hmm. the kind of lowest common denominator. So the, so there's something, there's some kind of real virtue in my Methodist friends being the best Christians in the Wesleyan tradition that they can be in the face of my Presbyterian friends who are being the best Christians they can be in the traditions of Geneva and John Knox. Yeah, I, I would say so. If 
and this is, I think this isn't a particularly big if, it's an important one, but if there is table fellowship, if mm-hmm. they can share the Lord's Supper and discern the one body in one another, mm-hmm. that that is a rich testimony to oneness, not a monochrome testimony to oneness. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But there has to be unity in essentials. Yeah. There, there is, there is a core. <laughs> we are agreed on what we're all looking at and perhaps right. saying different things about. Yeah, and and my proposal really only makes sense, I think, theologically, if we do distinguish what in the book I call first order and second order and third order doctrines. Mm-hmm. That is, so often churches have split over a doctrinal issue, which though important is not a first-order doctrine insofar as the integrity of the gospel doesn't depend upon it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, take baptism, adult versus infant baptism. I'm not at all saying that this difference isn't important. I'm not at all saying that the position one takes won't have consequences in the way you do discipleship. But I am saying it's a different kind of disagreement than the disagreement as to whether God is fundamentally one or triune, or I should say, whether God is three, three separate persons rather than triune. That that, that would be an orthodox mm-hmm. issue of the first order. Baptism isn't like that. Again, I'm not saying it's not important. Mm-hmm. It's important enough for churches to go their separate ways, mm-hmm. but they can still partner on other issues. They can have a single mission, and it, because at the end of the day, we have to say there is only one church. As you said, he is a monogamist. There is only one church, only one bride. Mm. The distinguishing first order from second order, and then in the book you bring in third order things, which uh, variation that a, a single local congregation could contain within itself um, in a way that you couldn't necessarily divergences on, on uh, baptismal practice, right. for instance. Um if you look at the history of the church, some of the greatest moments that we see of unity on first order things, um, we would look at today. Uh, we, we we turn to the first council of Nicaea and and that that affirmation of the first order deity of Christ. And in their ruling, they're also talking about when we all cel- should be celebrating Easter. Ah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, th- th- this is one of those issues where um, retrie- the the task of retrieval to ground it could uh, can be tricky. I don't I don't think we've always been very good at that. And I and I say we meaning yeah. like thousands of years of Christians. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. The, oh, my quick response, and this is a difficult issue. I mean, when it comes to you know reconciling <laughs> millennia old church disagreements, I don't have an easy patch, you know. (laughs) What I would say is this, the disagreement you just mentioned about the celebration of Easter, Mm -hmm. that's not a matter, that's not a difference in faith, that's a difference in order. That's a difference in church order. You know, when are we going to celebrate as a church Easter? Mm -hmm. We agree on what Easter is. That's a matter of faith, right? The resurrection. When to celebrate it, I would say that's not a matter of faith so much as of order. Mm -hmm. And it's really the differences in order tend to be the ones that often separate us. That is like baptism. What's the order? Is it adult or, or pedo-baptist? Mm. So I'm not sure I would want to leave it at that, but I, I just, 
that did strike me as accounting for the one difference you mentioned. Right. Right. Well, all of this, uh, all of this discussion has lead you in the end of the book to say some really nice things about evangelicalism. (laughs) Some of the nicest things about evangelicalism that I've read in a really long time. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. So how is it that you see your vision of a kind of glorious unity and diversity in evangelicalism and so many others just see a big mess? Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I have also said some not so nice things about evangelicalism, okay. but let's, let's make a distinction. Um, there's, evangelicalism as it is and there's evangelicalism as it should be Mm. and as it is there are some major problems and i don't think i need to go through the litany but the fact is that you know all too often we fail Um, that's just the reality we failed through history to live up to our citizenship of the gospel so evangelical to me It's more of a prayer and an aspiration, that term. It's more of that than it is a fait accompli. You know, Mm. if I say I'm an evangelical, I'm saying I'm a gospel person. Can I really say that? Well, I I want to say that. In one sense, I can because I've been crucified and raised with Christ. So in one sense, I can. But as we know, we're... We, we're saved already, but there's a not yet aspect of our salvation. And it's the same with evangelicalism. We've been set apart as a gospel people, but are we there yet? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know, we, we don't, we haven't conformed to our reality in Christ. Hmm. So when I say negative things about evangelicalism, I'm usually describing the sociological entity that exists on earth, actual evangelicalism. We aren't there yet. Hmm. We're not there by a long way. However, there's also normative evangelicalism. There's that identity in Christ that we're trying to aspire to. It's real. It's real, but we haven't realized it on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. So it's it's a little bit—I do say glorious things about evangelicalism, but but look, uh, think about marriage. Yeah. Don't we want to say glorious things about marriage? Yes, but mm-hmm. but but <laughs> when we look at actual marriages, <laughs> we can't always say as glorious things. But the institution of marriage, what it should be, what God created it to be, is marvelous, and so too it should be with evangelicalism. Hmm. It's 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 it has you know like marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But like real marriage is, it also has a long way to go. Hmm. We are already and not yet evangelicals. Yeah, in Christ we're already raised with him. But, but so often in Paul's writings, after he states a gospel indicative, this is the way it is in Christ, he then adds a gospel imperative, which is, so conform your life and act like this, act it out. And I think that's true of individuals. I also think it's true of the church. We are in Christ. Now let's act it out. Let's do it. And uh, let's conform to the reality that is in Christ rather than persisting in our illusions. 
so how do we and you you tip your hat towards Chesterton much much earlier in the book uh, his his quotation about Christianity being found difficult and left untried and you say that mere Protestantism has been found arduous and left unfinished um, yes how yes. how should we today with the evangelicalism that we've got how do we work towards finishing the arduous task right that's a great question so one of the reasons I wrote the book is I don't want people to despair of Protestantism. I don't want people to give up. I don't want people to neglect the the real insights that we have in the Reformation that I think could help us in our present situation, particularly with regard to our ecclesiology. Hmm. So how do we how do we move on from here? Um, I think we need to retrieve these insights. I think we need to uh, reinstitute some of the practices we see at the Reformation. One of the nicest discoveries I made in my research was um, about how Genevan pastors got together on Friday afternoons in what they called congregation, which is simply gatherings of pastors, to study the Bible together. I call that in the book canonical conference. Hmm. In other words, instead of reading the Bible on your own, get together with others, preferably those who've had some training, and share your interpretations. You know, give the back and forth of why you think your interpretation is preferable. I think, I think the Holy Spirit can use canonical conference, and this is very different, you see, from pontification. Hmm. No one person is in a position to pontificate about biblical meaning. We need canonical conference. And the other discovery I made was that the Reformers were all for Catholic councils, church councils. They just didn't want them to be narrowly Catholic, uh, you know, Roman only. They wanted them to be truly representative. And I see evangelicalism as providing a loose structure for that kind of Catholic council, and one example that I think I would want to give that I did not include in the book uh, is the 20th century uh, Catholic council that we call the Lausanne Conference. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, the Lausanne Covenant was a statement produced by the Lausanne Conference, which included representatives from over 150 nations and who knows how many thousands of churches. But they were able to have a conference, and it was centered on the gospel, and they partnered together across denominational lines, and they produced a common statement, the the Lausanne Covenant. That, to me, is how we go about finishing the arduous task of mere Protestant Christianity. Hmm. Excellent. Well, Dr. Van Hooser, um, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, As have I. I hope our listeners have as well. Well, on Christian Humanist Profiles, we always give our guests the last word. What word would that be, sir? Ah, well, it has to be thanks. Uh, You're welcome. First first to you, uh, you know, for letting me bear witness, because uh, presumably for as long as there's a digital haven on Earth, <laughs> my witness will be eternal. Excellent. But then also thanks uh, to 
the God of the gospel. It's what we've been talking about is, is grace and the economy of grace and the gift we've been given in Christ, a gift that we have not fully received, especially the oneness we have in Christ. It's not a oneness that requires us to water down truth. It's a oneness that requires us to appreciate the complexity and richness of truth. And I think it's thanks for that truth in Jesus Christ that I want to be my last word. Excellent. Well, dear listeners, uh, we've been lis- uh, we've been talking with Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, uh, the author of Biblical Authority After Babel, Retrieving the Solas in the Spirit of Mere Protestant Christianity. It is out from Brazos Press right now. Uh, if you want to check out that book, there will be a link to the Brazos Press page on the show notes when those post. Uh, our blog is christianhumanist.org, so you can check that out there. You can also, if you want to leave feedback, you can post them in the comments on the show notes when on the blog. You can also send us an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post on our Facebook page as well. You can like us on Facebook and give us good ratings on iTunes. All those things help people find us more easily, and so spread the good word. Well, uh, I am David Grubbs, wishing you all the grandest of weeks. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Britt Stack. <laughs>